What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. My guest today is founder and chairman of Bandit Lights, Michael Strickland. But... He also is a driving force behind a new organization called the Entertainment Association. Michael, what is that? Bob, thank you very much for having me, and and thanks for asking the question. Uh, Many people know me and know who I am now because the last two and a half years I've worked with Congress to uh, affect change and, and get financing, basically, for our industry. But what is the Entertainment Association? Probably the most important thing that we will do that we need to do as an industry, and here's why. What I discovered first and foremost in the last two and a half years uh, in Congress is that this industry holistically has no voice. Two and a half years ago when I began my journey, and last week when I'm still in my journey, what you hear every day is go away. You have no voice. Because what did we as an industry do when the pandemic began? The Restaurant Association win is one. The Airline Association win is one. All of the other industries that you would think of, automotive, they win as one, one voice. You didn't have in the restaurant situation the waiters fighting the cooks, fighting the cleanup people, fighting the suppliers. What did entertainment do? We went in a thousand canoes. They all went in battleships. We went in a thousand canoes. There were so many voices that the senators and the representatives did not even want to deal with us. So that brought me to the moment that I realized we've got to have a unified front, just like all these other industries do. And it's it's much bigger than just music. Anyone that needs to gather a crowd to earn a living would qualify as being in the Entertainment Association, and that's basketball, baseball, football, ballet, Hopi Indian dancing, children's uh, uh, dance ensemble, you name it. Anyone that needs a crowd, when the country shut down, they had no voice. 
And as I went through my endeavors, uh, it was really the small people that got hurt the most. All of the cultural uh, uh, organizations around the United States that promoted regional or, or, or in some cases, even national uh, dance troops and and cultural things, they had absolutely no voice. And and we've got to correct that because they're, they're, bottom line, there's just no voice before Congress other than a thousand voices. And a thousand voices before Congress do not get heard. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. It's March 2020. Obviously, your company is affected by the shutdown. How do you get involved in this whole money from the government lobbying voice thing? Another great question, Bob. Uh, I've got a degree in business and a degree in law. Started in the show business at age 12, but along the way, uh, I've done a number of things politically. Uh, uh, I ran the Chamber of Commerce here in Knoxville for four years. I'm on the board of directors at the local hospital. Uh, I lobbied for the, uh, the university at the state and the federal level, and I know a lot of politicians. So I had this weird background that never came into play, and I used to wonder, why do I have this weird background? Well, on March 13th, which was a Friday, Friday the 13th, that was the day that Live Nation, AEG, NCAA, NFL, all of those people said, we're done. You know, it took two weeks to flatten the curve. When that happened, I picked the phone up and I called Marsha Blackburn, who was one of my two senators who I've known for 40 years. And I also called Lamar Alexander, my other senator. And I said, what do we do? Help us, help us. You know, we, we need some help politically. Uh, uh, and so we began the conversation. Lamar, when I called him, you know, we spoke a bit and then I called him back on Sunday the 15th and he was with Stephen Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury at the time. And Lamar put the cell phone on speaker and I explained to Mnuchin what was going on. And he, he said, well, surely you have contracts. And I said, well, you know, yes, we do. But so what? And he goes, well, surely these people are going to pay you. And I said, that's not the way it works. Now, now, Mnuchin, I don't know what you know about him, but he was in the movie business, and he made a lot of huge movies. You can Google him. He made a whole bunch of those action thrillers in the 80s and early 90s. So he understands entertainment. And I said, Stephen, you, you don't get paid. And he goes, well, sue them. And I said, the first time you sue somebody is the last time you work with them in, in, in show business. And I think he knew that. And his comment when I got through explaining how our industry works was he paused a moment and said, what a stupid business. <laughs> and, and, you know, that was kind of how it started. So they began introducing me to other people. Now, I knew some other people at the time. Uh, okay, let, let's just go back for a second. You're two senators. How do you literally know them? You get a call back or you get a pickup right away? Yeah, I've got their cell phone numbers. <laughs> I knew Marsha before she was in politics and her first job was uh, running the state uh, of Tennessee's Tape and Film Commission, which promotes movies and television within the state. And uh, I was on the, that board, and I worked with her and set up a Knoxville Tape and Film Commission. So we worked hand-in-hand in, hand in her first what you would call political job. And then from there, she became a state representative and a state senator, and then a U.S. representative and then a U.S. senator. So we go back 45 years. Lamar Alexander is actually from this area, and, uh, you know, he's been in, in federal government 45 years. But along his journey, 
uh, he, he was the president of the University of Tennessee. He was the uh, secretary of education. You know, he did a lot of different things. So I knew him locally as he grew up. And, you know, I had both their cell numbers and, and they're what you would consider friends. Okay. So Mnuchin says it's a stupid business. What happens next? Yeah, it, it, I told him there are stupid things about it. And uh, Marsha and and uh, Lamar <clears throat> immediately began helping me with introductions. And uh, one person led to another. And uh, in my life, uh, I have had the good fortune to meet a lot of people, which have led me to other interesting people. Uh, Jimmy Haslam, who owns the Cleveland Browns, is a good friend of mine. Uh, his family owns Pilot Flying J, uh, the truck stops. That's the sixth largest private company uh, in the United States. So I called up Jimmy, and Jimmy introduced me to Rob Portman, the senator from uh, Ohio. Uh, Barry Switzer, the, 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 the Oklahoma football coach and the Dallas Cowboy coach, dear, dear friend of mine for years and years and years. So I called up Switzer. He introduces me to the Arkansas uh, and the Oklahoma senators, uh, and, and so on and so forth. I, I would call people I knew that, that knew people who would introduce me to people. And suddenly I'm talking to senators and representatives from all over the United States, and, and we're gathering steam. And uh, eventually that led me to uh, uh, Senator Todd Young from Indiana. And uh, Senator Young had written a bill along with Senator Golden from Colorado called the Restart Act. And uh, if you trail back in history, and I, I'm not sure if you're aware, but but the Restart Act, we in entertainment launched a really impressive thing back in 2000, which we called Red Alert Restart. We lit 2,800 buildings in the United States at the same time on the same night. And it ranged from uh, uh, Niagara Falls to the Empire State Building to the Seattle Space Needle to half of the buildings in Las Vegas. Uh, to stadiums all over the United States, and then you move into little towns. And we had people in the same night all over America donating their time, their equipment. And then we had a live webcast uh, that the cameras, you know, we switched from this city to that city to the next city to bring attention to the fact that this industry needed the Restart Act passed. Now, you may say, what's Restart and why did you back it? Well, I spent February, March, April, May, June, July, all the way through to December 20th of 2020, being the driving force behind Restart, there were 92 out of 100 senators that signed on to Restart. There were 390 House members that signed on to Restart. And Restart was not for our industry. Restart simply said any small business which has less than 500 employees and suffered a 25% reduction in income in any one quarter in 2020 would get from the government 45% of their 2019 income. The only exclusions were you couldn't be in the adult entertainment industry and you couldn't be publicly traded. So this was a broad-based bill that, that would help all of American business. And I'm sure, Bob, that, that you noticed as this went on, you had restaurants in trouble. And I mean, a lot of businesses were in trouble. Well, Restart was going to be the vehicle. So... The day that I go first go testify before the Senate, December 20th, 2020, uh, I'm giving my spiel, and, 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 and it was a two-and-a-half-hour Senate testimony and Q&A. Everybody said, yep, we're going to pass it. We're going to pass it. And lo and behold, they didn't pass it. 
And to this day, no one can give me why other than uh, Todd Young uh, had kind of backed off of it in November. To this day, I don't know why. Uh, And his girl, every senator, senators and representatives are are the entertainers. Uh, Their staff are the songwriters. Their staff hands them a sheet before they go into a meeting or before they go into an event. And, you know, it's a one pager that gives them the high points. And unless they're invested in it, they kind of get the high points and go in and do the spiel and then they move on. Most people don't understand that the average senator and or representative have between 800 and 1400 bills that they're dealing with. So how much attention can they give anyone? Uh, I believe that Senator Young was all in on this bill. And I think that he was at some point, but he had a girl that that was his you know chief songwriter, if you will. Well, she left uh, at the end of November and went to work for Rob Portman. And what I didn't know at the time was when she left, the bill left, if you know what I mean. This, this was the person, this was the engine that drove it all. So when, when she disappeared, uh, her name was Ann Gordon. When, when Ann disappeared, the engine disappeared. There were two engines to that bill. One was me and the other was Ann. I didn't even know she'd left. <laughs> so here I am before Senate testifying and pushing this darn thing. And, you know, the heart's gone out of it on the on, on the senator's side. And it just laid there and died. And, and at that point in time, I was also in a parallel fashion working to make sure that what started out as Save Our Stages uh, and ended up being called SVOG, Shuttered Venues Operators Grants, got passed. And in my testimony... Uh, I pushed for both of those, and the analogy that I used was that uh, SVOG uh, was needed and was landing on the beach in Omaha, but we needed to get to Paris. So once we'd landed with SVOG and taken care of the venues and, and the venue-related people, we then had to go up the cliff into Paris, and how did we do that? We did that with Restart. And when I left that 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 evening— I knew we had gotten both of them passed, and in fact, they they told me we had. And I've got the congressional record, and it it tells you in there that they're going to be passed, but then it didn't pass. (laughs) So then I shifted all my attention to uh, Save Our Stages SVOG, and that's that's how it begun. Okay, Save Our Stages. Uh, I'm not taking any money from that. I don't own a venue, but it seemed like at first the money wasn't available, and then if you weren't early, you didn't get any money. What was going on there? There was a whole lot of steps and missteps from the beginning in execution, which led to uh, misunderstanding. Again, I became the voice for all of live entertainment, and I I ended up with an email chain of 1.3 million people. And that I still have it. That email chain Included not only traditional live show people, music people, if you will, but I ended up uh, advising the Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild, the Producers Guild, the Broadway League, the National Association of Broadcasters, International Association of Venue Managers, and on and on and on, International Associations of Fairs and Expositions, the rodeo people. I mean, it, it just got bigger and bigger, the air show people. And, and every day I got another group that, that, that looped in and I put all of the names into my email thing. So I became the go-to guy. And when that bill started, they excluded. uh, The first thing that happened was the SBA came out with uh, frequently asked questions. And at this time, a lady named Barb Carson was was running the SBA. 
lovely lady, very cooperative, a lot of help. So I guided them through the fact that why are you excluding fares? Because there was this big push that if you didn't have a venue and if you didn't sell tickets, you couldn't have any money. And and the frequently asked questions that first came out pointedly said that fairs, rodeos, and festivals couldn't participate. I had a whole bunch of festival people that I talked to, including Danny Wimmer and all of his people at DWP, great people, uh, and and, and uh, Gene Cassidy up at IEFE, a lot of great people. Well, we worked really hard for about three months, and and we got them over the hump and so they slowly said, okay, okay, fairs, fairs can come in. Okay, rodeos can come in. And then eventually, okay, festivals can come in. So, so in the first three, four, five months, we got those people in. Uh, but the only exclusions, and you have to read the law, were adult entertainment and publicly traded companies. And all of a sudden, these frequently asked questions just, just started putting boxes th- that weren't there in the law. They just weren't there. So I began to point out to them, it's not what the law says. Well, Barb Carson left, and Isabella Guzman came in. And Isabella Guzman had a very strict and narrow view of this law based on a lot of conversations that she had had uh, with other people. And there were those who believed that, that the money in the program uh, wouldn't cover anybody outside of the initial Round and, and people think it was, there are two thoughts. One, most people, including the senators, thought that this money was for everybody. Why is that? Because the message was broadcast that give it to the venues and it will trickle down to everybody. Well, that's simply not true. You know, the venues didn't open forever and ever. But, but it wasn't just for venues. If you go read uh, Save Our Stages, it's pointedly for, for uh, independent venues. In other words, Live Nation and AEG had nothing to do with this, absolutely nothing to do with it. So it was for independent venues, managers, agents, and promoters. So those people were included. If you were not in one of those four groups, you were on the outside looking in, and that goes to your question. So there was a whole lot of confusion, which which you know led to me counseling people, Sending people copies of the let of the law, uh, doing notes and whatnot, and we never really changed Isabella Guzman's mind. You know, she she never relented, and and then the the, the darn software crashed, and this happened, and that happened. You know, and it took four or five months to open up, and then when it did open up, the initial ask was for fourteen million dollars. Well, after I testified and I told them in my testimony, take care of all of us. They put sixteen point two five million in by billion in there. Excuse me, and uh, again, it's in the congressional record. My name is in there, and it says after my testimony, they put another two point five billion in. Well, fast forward to, to when it shuttered about a year ago. Uh, it shuttered with uh, about four billion dollars in it, and then they gave some second rounds, and and they did this and they did that, and it ended up with guess what, two billion sitting there. And that $2 billion is still sitting there. That's the money that was for the other people, which should have included radio and television and, and you know, people, support and service people like myself. Uh, but, but it was never open to those people. And, and, and that is why I wrote another bill called the MUSIC Act, which stands for Music Under Severe Income Crisis. You have to have a good an acronym. And uh, 
We dropped that over a year ago with bipartisan support, and it just hasn't gotten passed yet. We couldn't get it into the uh, omnibus bill because Rand Paul wouldn't let it come out of the Small Business Committee because Rand Paul wants all money clawed back. And uh, But he's now not on the Small Business Committee, and uh, uh, we're reintroducing it, and we hope to get it passed uh, in Q1 of this year. And and I don't know what you know about legislation, but the big thing that stops any legislation is funding, what they call pay-fors. When you have a bill, you're technically supposed to have a pay-for. This doesn't need a pay-for. Why? There's there's $2 billion sitting in SVOG just sitting there. Now, what are we fighting? We're fighting reallocation. In other words, take that money away from us and give it to save the whales or, or whatever the cause may be. So... For the better part of, of a year, I've been fighting to make sure that that money, A, doesn't get reallocated, and B, that we pass the Music Act and get that money to the people in the entertainment industry that have been left behind. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. 
Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So everybody who qualified and who applied ended up getting money over the hoops you had to jump through rough. How did it play out practically? Great question. And and no, everybody that, that, that should have qualified didn't get money. And here's why. The hoops were incredible. Uh, the, the things that they made everyone do were, were stunningly stupid. Uh, and probably what exacerbated it was the SBA had never administered a program like that. It's not what they do. So they just basically brought people uh, a step above manpower in to be reviewers. Well, you you know, because you're in the entertainment industry, very few people understand how the entertainment industry works. So now you've got these reviewers looking at this data, reading these answers. It might as well have been nuclear physics. And then they had to make value judgments. Okay, this person does or this person doesn't. And so, so the reviewers had absolutely, absolutely no ability. Even myself, to this day, people in this town think that, that Bandit Lights does all the rock shows in Knoxville, and that's how it works. Well, it's not how it works. You sign a contract with an artist and follow them. And trying to explain this industry to anyone would take a month. So you have all these great people that had no knowledge of the industry grading the papers, if you will. It would be like me grading a, a nuclear physics test. I, I wouldn't have a clue. And, and, and there was no one answer because the answers were esoteric. And uh, so th- there were promoters that didn't get money. There were managers that didn't get money. There were venues that didn't get money because they weren't skilled enough to execute this monolithic set of paperwork. And they are still out there. And th- these are people I'm still fighting for. Uh, the bulk of them did, uh, but the, the the odd thing was the only qualification was that your entity lost at least 25% in any one quarter in 2020. Well, I think everybody lost at least 25% in one quarter, but then when you take a really small entity uh, that has no ability uh, to to do this this very sophisticated paperwork, when you get to that moment, that poor entity didn't fill it outright and didn't get any money. So fast forward to today, I'm trying to get it reopened, not only for the people that were flatly denied the money, but but for the promoters and the managers and the agents and the business managers. A lot of business managers didn't get any money. How do you think they felt? Uh, most of the TV people didn't. Most of the movie people didn't. Uh, wedding planners didn't. Uh, all of the ethnic uh, uh, organizations across America that I spoke about didn't. Uh, just a lot of folks didn't. But 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 even if it were open to them, to to answer your question, the paperwork was so onerous that it, that it kicked most people out. Okay, assuming you got money, was it a loan or a grant? It was a loan that could be turned into a grant. There, there was a, uh, for each of the categories, be you a venue, a promoter, a manager, or an agent, there was a, a list of things that you could and couldn't spend the money on. And uh, 
that wasn't really the tough part because it was pretty pretty broad. At the end of the day, I think almost everybody, if not everybody, that got a loan did convert it to a grant because they were so very, very forgiving in what you could spend it for. You couldn't spend it for political contributions. Uh, you couldn't buy real estate with it. You couldn't pay off a pre-existing loan. Uh, and that was really about it. Other than that, you could do about anything. Okay, the obvious question is, did bandit lights get money? No, we, we did not. Uh, the When this all began, uh, th- think about think about a war. Now, bear in mind, I was never mean. I was never nasty. I was, I, I was always polite. But, but, you know, in a wartime situation, who do they shoot at first? The guy carrying the flag. <laughs> you know, that's certainly back in the, you know, back in the old days, the guy carrying the flag in battle got shot first. I was the guy carrying the flag. I was the guy that was on the phone daily with the SBA and with Isabella Guzman and with all of her people. Not being ugly, but pointing out daily uh, and in the press. And again, never accusative, never ugly, never mean, but just going, that's not what the law says. You know, they are an administrative agency. Their function is to take the law and apply it, not to interpret it. And they interpreted it. Okay, Bandit Lights is not a public company, is it? No, we're not public and we're not in the adult entertainment industry. Right. So why didn't you get money? Because they said we are a support and service company, and in their frequently asked questions, they said support and service companies can't have money. So how did Bandit Lights make it through the shutdown? Uh, I am very fiscally conservative, uh, and I hoard cash. (laughs) So uh, we are the only company in the industry that I'm aware of globally. We have 300 employees, and we laid nobody off. We gave no pay cuts. We didn't reduce benefits. Uh, I, I bet on my people because I knew whenever this ended, whenever we got to the other side, I wanted to have my team together because I knew that the strength in any company is the people. And I got great people. And I knew that if we shut down and laid people off and gave pay cuts and did those kind of things, which which everybody else did because they had to, uh, I knew when we got to the other side, I would have this great team still with me. And guess what? We did. So when the world cranked back up, I wasn't have, having to hire people. Now, I don't mean that negative toward any of the people that did. Uh, there probably aren't, there's probably no one in, in live entertainment is fiscally conservative and debt averse and cash heavy as I am or was because we went through, you can imagine what it cost for 16 months to pay 300 people uh, in full with benefits and, and all of that. Okay, stuff. if we shut down today, how much longer can you keep open the doors? You know, I asked that question December of, of or excuse me, February of uh, 2020, because you just don't know. Uh, you know, the industry was at zero income. A lot of people in the industry, you know, you heard the word back in the early days, remember, pivot, pivot. You know, so you did this and you did that. We did a lot of strange things that brought in a little bit of money. We were very fortunate that that the company has two operating pieces. One is the live show piece with the Garth Brooks and Alice Cooper and Widespread Panic and Jimmy Buffett and Carrie Underwood and all these, Barry Manilow, all these wonderful artists. Uh, and that was shut down. We have an integration side that does venues worldwide. You know, we, we put lights and illumination things and all kinds of 
venues and, and, and museums and things, that didn't stop because all those contracts were let. And, that, and, and that's a funny point because three, four, five months into COVID, when New York and L.A. were totally shut, we had three jobs in NYC in New York City, two jobs in L.A., two jobs in Dallas, and, and they were union-controlled jobs. And it was so funny because you never heard this. Those jobs never stopped. And, and, and the, the legal forces that would come in and try to shut a job, they came in once. And, and, and the powers that be on that job site just kind of looked at them and said, nah, we're not shutting down. And that was the end of that. <laughs> so okay. that all Axe, that continued. Right. Hacks got money. Okay, because they have a road crew. Under what banner did they get the money? Very few artists got money. And uh, again, what I'm telling you, Bob, is 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 not opinion. It's it's. I worked 18 hours a day and still do for you know, two and a half years talking to everybody. Uh, clearly, you had your, you know your A level acts, your Madonnas, your Weekends, your Garth Brooks, your your U2s, your Rolling Stones. These are people that could actually shut down, hibernate, and be okay. Very few people are at that level. Uh, then you've got everybody else. Uh, everybody else, to one degree or another, struggled mightily. And the perception from the public and the perception from Congress was that all stars are wealthy and that all stars should pay all their people. Go away. I mean, and I heard that every day. Go away. You work for these really famous people. What they don't realize is small handful of really wealthy people in entertainment. Then there's everybody else. And and uh, so those people struggled. Most None of the big acts got money. Really, none of the sort of next level acts got money. Uh, the few artists that did get money, many of them worked with me. And I'm not going to name names because that wouldn't be fair. But, but they worked with me. And I would walk them through the paperwork, and most of them were what we would call legacy acts. You know, big acts in the 70s and 80s that still sell tickets, still do quite well. But a lot of the legacy acts did get money. And uh, most of them, when they would get their money, uh, most of them would turn around and, and pay their crew, which which was really neat. You know, that they wouldn't just keep it. They they wanted it to pay their crew. And, uh, you know, that, that was very, very admirable. Uh, and, and I'll name one act because I think I'm close enough with the act to to do this. And, and, and you know part of it, uh, uh, Toby Mammoth, Alice Cooper. Right. I mean, Alice j- jumped in there, got PPP. Even before PPP, he kept his people paid. I mean, what a guy. You know, Alice is perceived as the guy with the makeup and all that he is. But Alice is one of the nicest guys in the world. He's You know, he, he's a guy, you know. And... He, he was one of the artists that just said, hey, I'm taking care of my folks. That's what I'm going to do. And then they got some PPP, and then they got the second round of PPP, and they took care of their people. But but there were a lot of legacy acts that did that uh, through PPP, uh, but but not SVOG. But again, there were a, a small handful of artists that did get SVOG money because I walked them through it and primarily legacy. I'm unaware of what we would call a, a big act that got any SVOG money. Okay. So you're the ringleader. Are there any other Michael Strickland's in this world or was it everything on your shoulders? Uh, 
from the holistic point of view, it was just me. When this when this whole thing began, I didn't realize that that literally no one else in, in uh, show business that I knew or met had any experience in politics or in lobbying. And and I thought along the way, well, people will join me. And and eventually I would talk to people and they go, well, I can't do that. I've never done that. I don't know what to do. And at the end of the day, no, no one directly joined me. Now, having said that, hundreds of thousands of people indirectly joined me. Each time I would send out a newsletter, which was two times a week, three times a week, I would send out a link, write your congressman, write your senator, write this letter, do this thing, make this phone call. Hundreds of thousands of people sprung into action. So, you know, it, it wasn't me. I was just sort of the, the, the guy carrying the flag. And the, the first big initiative we did was, was Red Alert Restart. Which was phenomenal, but but then we went through NAM National Association of Music Merchandisers and Joe Lamond and the great people there, and uh, they put up a website and we got hundreds of thousands of people to go onto the website and it it automatically sent letters you know to your senators and 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 representatives and whatnot, and we had a bunch of uh, initiatives like that. So it started out really broad based, and and then then we then we began to focus on state by state, region by region. And yes, I had millions of people that made this happen. Uh, where it would disintegrate or fall apart would be twofold. One, when people got money, many of them said, oh, I'm good and walked away from the cause. Uh, and then the other thing was people just lost their heart and they walked away. So I shifted from, from leader to cheerleader. Uh, and trying to keep people's spirits up. And I'm still in that role because two and a half years later, if you're one of those folks that haven't gotten money, it's probably uh, very hard to to maintain hope. But as human beings, that's all we have is hope. And, and so my role has been to keep people pumped up. And, and uh, you know, at first I thought that some of these big entities could and would participate but then the principles that these huge entities would explain to me, you know, we're publicly traded. You know, we, we can't we can't legally be go involved in, in this kind of a thing. And I went, oh, you know, I never thought about that. <laughs> so but but I can tell you that. Uh, and again, I'll use a name. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions and, and I'm not getting into the politics of whether you like or dislike Live Nation or AEG or Oakview or any of the big boy companies. But but Michael Rapino was more engaged and more involved and did more things quietly behind the scenes for the good of the industry than anyone. Uh, because Michael knew how vertically uh, integrated this industry is. And he knows that it's in the best interest of Live Nation for you know all of the downstream people, if you will, to survive. Because, you know, if 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 like the Kachanga Tower, if the bottom two thirds collapses, the big piece on top is in trouble. And and uh, Michael and 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 I and uh, Jay Marciano and Corin Capshaw and Charlie Walker at C three, uh, uh, and uh, uh, two or three other people uh, conversed regularly. Uh, Wayne Forte, uh, uh, you know the the agent. Uh, the, these people were all so heavily involved, uh, and we had these weekly conversations and daily emails and. These people did stuff behind the scenes, yet none of them benefited from it. But but they wanted to help the industry. And people will never know that. And the number of times 
I have talked to people who had a very negative opinion of, of some of the big folks. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't realize these, these guys and gals were out there fighting for you. Uh, and and they, they found that hard to believe. Uh, but I'm here to tell you it is true. Uh, okay. It's amazing. So what's the status of the Entertainment Association right now, and what is the pitch to people? What I began doing November 1st of last year, and I'm going to do through, through April the 15th of this year, is uh, I have already done hundreds of Zooms and personal meetings and phone calls. I've done, to date, 15 public speaking events to larger crowds like the one I did at Aspen. Uh, I'm going to Polestar to speak in, uh, next month. I'm going to NAM to speak. Uh, I've got some other sort of large things. I'm spreading information, which is why I appreciate what you've done here today. Uh, and I'm going to continue to do that. And, and then I email people the, the, the PDF file, and, and I'm listening to people, and I'm having a lot of conversations. And, and I already have, uh, through conversations with entertainment people, as well as with political people, I, I'm, I'm shaping a vision of what this might look like. And, and bear in mind, this involves the NFL, the NBA, Major League Baseball, you know, anybody that needs a crowd. And, uh, you know, going back into the early days, uh, I, I was going home one day and Wayne Forty called me up and it was 10 o'clock at night and I was headed home. And this is right. Remember right when the, the COVID shots first came out? Yeah. And Wayne said, hey, you know what we need to do? And I said, what, Wayne? This was his his idea. He says, we need to stand up all of the venues and make them places to get shots. And I said, well, how would we do that? And he goes, Corn Capshaw's already doing it. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, Corn's got an old shopping center there in Charlottesville, and he's you know, set up whatever he's set up, and, and he's helping the community, and people are getting jabs at the – and I went, you're kidding. And he went, no. I said, well, we could never do this. He goes, yeah, and we had this great conversation. So I hung up and called Corin right then. And Corin said, yeah, that's what we're doing. You know, we, we're, we're doing these shots here in Charlottesville. So I told him what Wayne had said. Well, him and Wayne had already talked. And and uh, and, and that whole group I, I mentioned to talk. So literally in three days' time, uh, uh, Rapino agreed to, to offer all of the Live Nation venues, uh, Marciano, all the AEG venues. Uh, I called up uh, Jimmy Haslam. And within a day, I'm talking to Roger Goodell, and I had all the NFL venues. <laughs> and uh, then uh, uh, Bruton Smith, who who owns, he, he passed away last year. He owned 11 NASCAR speedways. He hooked me up with the Francis, and we had all all of the NASCAR speedways and 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 all these other. So in four days' time, we had all these venues all across America. It was it was amazing how people came to the table and offered their venues up to to give shots. And and that was because of this this community that we had and these people simply saying yes. And all of a sudden, and you saw it on the news, we had all these shot clinics. I went up to the Speedway in Bristol, the Bristol Motor Speedway, where they have the Bristol 500. And NBC interviewed me up there because that's when it was just starting. And uh, it, it was just amazing to watch the synergy of how all these people could and would work together. So I'm sitting at my desk one day and my cell phone rings and it's John Tyson, CEO of Tyson Foods. And he introduced himself and he said, I've got more refrigerated tractor trailers than anybody in the world. I want to offer them up to haul the uh, the vaccine around. 
So I'm, I immediately connected him with Jeffrey Zentz, who at the time was the COVID czar in the White House, and John provided the uh, uh, the tractor trailers to haul the the vaccines around. And and John and I became great friends in all of that. Became tremendous friends. And and Rapino put his people to work when this that initiative started. And we sent a letter to the president. You may have seen it. And it's it's signed by Live Nation and AEG and and all those entities that I mentioned. You know, to the president saying, we're here to help you. And and it was the power of, of Live Nation and AG and the NFL and all these big names. Uh, that thing, that letter broke on the, on the Wall Street Journal. I mean, and that's pretty big to get something of that nature in the front page of the Wall Street Journal. But, but again, that was the power of these people making these things happen. And, and we moved forward with that team ever since then and, and got all the vaccines distributed. Okay, but today, the world is open up today anyway. What's the pitch to make for someone to become a member of the Entertainment Association? And if they do become a member, is there going to be money involved? How's it all going to work? That's why I'm having conversations. There is what I call my belief. I don't want to own it. I don't want to steer it. I don't want to control it. I just want to make sure we do it. Here is my belief today, and it, it hasn't moved this core belief. No, I don't think you build it by having uh, all these people pay $10, 20 pick a number. Uh, According to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, we are a $1 trillion industry with 10 million people. That's sizable. Uh, uh, Restaurants are are a 600, almost a $700 billion industry with 5 million people. So we're ish twice the size of the restaurant industry. But what do they have that we don't? the National Restaurant Association. You know, they, they have a voice on the Hill. In 2019, all of what we would call entertainment gave $2 million political contributions. That counts Live Nation and the NFL and Major League Baseball and everybody else. So what's, what's the pitch here? Uh, the pitch is it will never work if we have to have an organization and a structure and people giving money and people keeping up with it. I believe we're going to end up with an organization seated in D.C. in a lobbying firm uh, that represents our goodwill and the, the major players, the, 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 the big organizations within this industry. There is a number, and, and uh, I think that number was asked when you were in Aspen, and you know I don't want to answer it here, but, but there is a number where if you take these top, say, 20 large entities— and each one put in X dollars, it wouldn't be a line item on their budget, yet it would be enough money to fund operations. And what are operations? Operations, very simply, are you're going to have to give some level of funding to 100 senators. That's the most elite club in the world, the U.S. Senate. So you're going to have to give some level of money every year to 100 senators and probably 25 House members, representatives, the people that are on the right committees. So you're going to be making annual donations to probably 125 people. You're going to have to pay some amount of money, obviously, to the firm to to do the lobbying. And all of a sudden, when you go in and sit down and talk to them, which I have done for two and a half years, when their guy or gal picks up that piece of paper and goes, huh, Entertainment Association, yeah, they give us $15,000 every year. Send them in. Whereas what we went through now was, the rodeo association send them away i mean we had no voice 
no, no one had a voice because no one, you know, whatever you think of politics, uh, and I, you probably heard me say this in uh, Aspen, there, there is no red or blue. There is only green. And and that's that's not a funny statement. That's the truth. It's It's all about the money in D.C. And if you're not doing something uh, for a politician, they've little reason to do anything for you. And I don't mean that negative or ugly, but we have to create this entity and it has to have one purpose. And, and, and you can't vary off this because there's only one thing that brings everybody that needs a crowd to make a living together. And that is to either prevent and or deal with a future shutdown. Period. End of report. We can't go beyond that because the minute you wander away from that, well, what about ticket pricing or, you know, 10,000 issues? Some people would be for that. Some people would be against that. But but we're all needing to deal with potential shutdowns. And again, right now, there are several conditions that people in Congress want to shut us down. Right now, there are people in Congress that don't believe we should be having crowds. Uh, right now, there are people in Congress that believes if any act of war anywhere in the world happens, we should shut down. Think 9-11. You know, the country shut for five days after 9-11. Uh, there are people in Congress right now that think we shouldn't be having public gatherings today because of the social unrest that's going on. So, you know, th- there are a lot of what we would call fringe thoughts out there in Congress, uh, left and right, red and blue. Uh, about shutting down and what if one of those takes hold you know what if one of those takes hold there are two industries that were totally shut uh, live live entertainment and cruise lines and cruise lines you know that's that's a handful of companies and they all went to the saudis for money Uh, so that's their solution and that's why they're not really in this conversation but for us we are tens of thousands of little and big companies that need a single voice and and we need a plan and we need an agreement with congress and we need a voice with congress to first prevent and then second and or deal with a future shutdown and and that's pretty much it it's it's a real simple it's a real simple process and and anyone that that takes the position uh well it'll never happen again did you ever think it would happen the first time Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm gonna talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic, and then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, playing devil's advocate here, your heart's in the right place, you've done a lot of work, but it seems pretty amorphous to me. How do we nail it down and make it happen? First and foremost, it's talking to as many people as I can, and, and again, that's why I appreciate this offer uh, and this opportunity, Bob, because a lot of people are going to hear this, uh, and it's, you know, it's winning hearts and minds one at a time. But but the ultimate the ultimate guide to achieving this are the decision makers in the largest firms at the highest levels. Uh, believe it or not, sports leagues are probably the easiest because they have a league. If you get the buy-in from Roger Goodell, you've got the NFL. All of the sports leagues sit in that situation. So most of the sports things are, are actually easier. But when you get into all of the tens of thousands of people and entities within the traditional live entertainment, music, and that kind of a thing, yeah, you've got the big boys, the Live Nation, the AEG, the CAA, the William Morris, the Oakview, you know, those people. But then there's so many other ones, aren't there? And if, if, if the top 20 firms can understand this and can agree to this, and and can fund this, then there's this then there's this mechanism that will take care of everybody, and and no one firm, no one person can control it, can can be the the person, and and that's why I say it's got to have a single focus. You you can't wander off into other causes because then other people will say, 
well, you know, Company X is controlling this, and they're going to pass legislation to benefit themselves about whatever. No, the, the whole thing has to be focused on what do we do to prevent and then and or deal with a future shutdown. And, and, and I've, after a lot of talking, I've got some pretty good ideas uh, of a very effective path, and, and I'll share this with you. Uh, this is the first time I've said this publicly. Most people don't know that the United States is, is cut up into uh, sectors. And uh, uh, the uh, FEMA has cut America into sectors. And FEMA issues five-year contracts to each sector, uh, to construction companies, to do uh, remediation. Uh, in other words, Katrina, 9-11, those kind of things. When 9-11 happened, they didn't go out and get bids to clean it up. Uh, a good friend of mine, oddly enough, had the contract for, for New York. So when the towers came down, uh, Phillips and Jordan's the name of the company, they went up to New York, and they're still up there doing remediation. But that deal was struck before that. Katrina, that deal was struck before that. And that's what the government has done uh, for, for national emergencies. For, for, for dealing with things of that nature. They have five-year contracts for every area of the country so that they're not chasing bids at that moment. I believe our solution lays in something like that. I believe that, that we get a lobbying firm and that we have conversations with the federal government that if indeed they ever shut the country down again, here's the plan for those of you in the live entertainment sector. You know, whatever that plan is, let's go ahead and get it done now. Let's get it in paper now. It's almost an insurance policy. Uh, and the federal government has done that in many other areas. It's, it's not just in the in the recovery area. And again, I've had this conversation with legislators, uh, and, and they're all kind of giving me the, you know, the, the positive head bob. Obviously, that has to be funded. <laughs> but uh, going back to the beginning of COVID, and I think you know what I'm about to say, uh, you couldn't turn the TV on that you didn't see sympathy for restaurants and gyms, restaurants and gyms, restaurants and gyms, never for entertainment. Why? You work for rich pop stars. <laughs> they should take care of you. Everybody eats at restaurants. A lot of people go to gyms. A lot of sympathy for those two uh, fields. There was no sympathy for us, none whatsoever. But they do now know, and indeed, uh, going into uh, the inauguration, uh, when when uh, when when uh, uh, Trump went out of office and uh, uh, Biden came into office, I got together a bunch of industry leaders and I said, "Guys, here's what we need to do: Let's just refuse to do any production services for anything to do with the inauguration. That'll get their attention, and not one company, including mine, <laughs> did that." And we all sat in the meeting and everybody went, oh, we can't do that. Why? We had just come out of 10 months of no income. And all of a sudden, you've got this you know, $2 million contract to do whatever the show is. Nobody would not do that. My company did that field of flags. If you saw you know, all those thousands of flags down the mall, that, that was Bandit Lights. We lit those flags. Uh, we got paid very well for it. It was a C3 production. Uh, it, it was a big, big, big thing. And I have to say, I didn't walk away from it. But would I have walked away from it if everybody else would have? Yes, I would. 
but but nobody wanted to. And and I get it; it was economic. But uh, those are the kind of moves that we're going to have to make. I think it will take the better part of a year and a half to two years from today to get us all together, to get a lobbyist, and to work with Congress to come up with a plan. Because we were the only people that were shut down. We didn't have takeaway. We didn't have delivery. We didn't have a muted version of being open where we could keep people six feet apart. It just doesn't work for what we do. So I think we can come up with a solution. Uh, there's there's a lot of bright minds out there. It's going to be a private-public partnership to figure out that solution. I'm willing to spend whatever time it takes. Uh, everything I have done in two and a half years, I've personally funded every airplane ticket, every hotel, every plane flight, every meal, every everything. There's no organization behind me. There's no funding behind me. This is just the right thing to do. And 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 that's that's my mission is to keep having these conversations. Okay. The music business, other than the big corporations, is a very street business. And a lot of entertainment is run by on intimidation. To what degree were the sports leagues and all these other things, to what degree were they open to you? What what do you mean open to me? They would say, oh, that's that guy, you know, in entertainment, concerts. That's a fraction of our income. We have our own people. We don't need it, you know. The You're kind of leaving out the interesting part. The NFL, the NBA, and uh, the MLB had phenomenal, and, and college football and college basketball, had uh, phenomenal television revenue. So... You know, they had a model that, okay, we know we've got this phenomenal money just from TV. But having said that, an NFL stadium that was empty with a pro team playing, getting phenomenal TV money is one thing. But putting the the, the fans in the butts, uh, the incremental revenue just in the ticket sales is, is in and of itself is not that much. But it, it, it wasn't just the fans in the seats that was missing. The fans in the seats drove merchandise sales, drove beer sales, drove food sales, drove sales within the city, you know, people coming and staying in hotels. And in many cases, the people that own those teams have interests in real estate and restaurants and and other things. So there is a bigger net loss, and it's primarily the the big pro teams. When you get into uh, the semi-pro and 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 a lot of the other sports, you know, there's not television revenue money. So those people are, are on board and they're listening to me. I mean, even the big people are listening. Going, yeah, I get it. Now, how much? Let's assume we've created this house. How much revenue would go to say? And I'm making this up: an NFL or a Live Nation or an AEG. There are all kinds of laws. There are all kinds of rules. There are all kinds of regulations that will probably prevent those people from directly benefiting from any kind of federal funding uh, because they're all out there. Uh, having said that, the, the the buildings around it, the stadiums, the restaurants, the things that they may or may not have a vested interest in will all benefit. And and therein you know, is why it would work. Uh and finding employees, you know, as you know, when they opened back up all of these sporting arenas and whatnot, they couldn't find people. They couldn't find ticket takers. They couldn't find janitors. They couldn't find people to work on the field. I mean, it was just so upside down and still is. 
still is. You know, the, the, the people problem hasn't recovered. So th- there are so many economic plays, uh, you know, outside of just the pure give some money to a great big, to, to the NFL. Uh, there's so many wins around the NFL because the NFL and the NBA and Live Nation and AG, all these big, big people, they know they don't exist without the ecosystem around them. And supporting that ecosystem around them uh, is necessary to their survival. Okay, we're back up now presently. Looking in hindsight, how many people left the business, companies went out of business? You know, what was the attrition factor Did most of the people muddle through? Great question, Bob. And again, what I'm about to tell you is not a, not a theory. This comes from talking to 1.3 million people for two and a half years. About 30% of, of organized entities within the live entertainment industry are gone now. They're just gone. Most of them were small. You know, there was a mom and pop shop that, that did this, that, or the other thing, and and they just went away. Will they be missed? Would anybody know the name of the company and say, "Hey, that company"? Probably not. But tens of thousands of people, some of which spent their entire lives. I had the pleasure of meeting a gentleman from Southern California. He was eighty years old. He and his wife and his two sons and their two wives did four state fairs in Southern California. They did cotton candy and corn dogs and elephant ears, and they had done it forever and ever and ever. And this gentleman ended up on the phone with me repeatedly, "Help me, help me, help me." And of course, at the end of the day, he got no uh, uh, he got no uh, SVOG. He ended up getting some PPP. But but this is a guy you wouldn't think about. You know, he's, he's a concessionaire for four state fairs. He had a building that was worth $2 million. So we end up on the phone. And he went to several lenders to get $750,000. He pledged the building as collateral. And he wanted the seven fifty, you know, to carry him and his family through, through COVID. He couldn't get anybody to lend him the money because he had no balance sheet. And he had no income statement that stood up because they were at zero. So he was kind of in catch-22. That's just one example because that's a really odd business and you wouldn't think about it. And eventually, you know, I helped him and eventually he got a workout. And, and, but there's, there's so many people like that. There's a, a dry cleaner in, in New York City that does the bulk of the dry cleaning for Broadway. You know, they have a big plant over on Long Island. And at night they go to Broadway and pick up all the costumes and take them and clean them and then bring them back. They can't do your dry cleaning and my dry cleaning. You know, they're not set up to do it. They were shut down. There's a lovely lady that has a, a company in New York and in Los Angeles. All she does is rent furniture to Broadway and movies. There's nothing else she could do, you know, because she, she can't just go on the street and rent furniture. Uh, so there's so many of those stories that that you don't know about that are out there. And so many of those people that need help, and I've gotten to know all of those people, tens of thousands of them. Well, many of those people went away, about 30%. Uh, Oddly enough, about 30% of the people in live entertainment, now I'm leaving sports out of this, but about 30% of the people in in live entertainment left. Who, Who left? Primarily people under 25 who had just come in, and they said to themselves, you know, this is nuts. I don't want to go through this again. I, I'm I'm going to do something else. And and the people in, in currently in Gen Z or whatever it is, they're going to have, uh, you know, depending on who you believe, about 17 jobs in their life. You and I, Bob, are old enough. We were going to have 1.4 jobs in our life. 
I haven't hit the point four yet. I've had one. <laughs> but so a lot of the younger folks left because they, they were going to have multiple jobs anyway. And they said, okay, I'm bailing. Then you had people 55 plus that were near the end of their run in, in rock and roll, if you will. And, and, and during COVID, they got a job at Home Depot or Amazon. And guess what? They had health insurance and they had retirement, things they had never had. And they said, you know what? I got five more years. I got 10 more years. I'm going to stay here at Amazon. And they they left. You had a lot of truck drivers for show business that, that just got a day rate and that's it. They ended up driving for Amazon and all those kinds of people. And they went, holy cow, I'm home at night. Get to see the family and benefits. So they left. So that kind of left uh, that was 30% of the industry that left. The 70% in the middle tended to be between 30 and 50. And those were people that were kind of trapped and it was all they knew to do. And again, I'm not making this up. I know it from talking to tens of thousands of people. So, and that's where we sit right now. A lot of really good people left. And because of the labor shortage, all of a sudden, and this is not unique to entertainment. It's happening everywhere. Uh, we, we have people unqualified people coming into our industry who don't know what they're doing, demanding tremendous sums of money, and in many cases getting it because they're the only body standing. And, and I think you know that's happening everywhere else. The The typical uh, warehouse worker went from $12 an hour to $25 an hour overnight. <laughs> well, it happened in rock and roll, too. And uh, Well, I know a very big promoter. He, had a, he pays his people everybody ushers and etc 30 bucks an hour because he found less than 30 you don't know if they'll show up yeah yeah and and it's not it's not sustainable okay let's talk about you where did you grow up i grew up in extreme east tennessee in a little bitty town called kingsport and and that that's why we're sitting here talking today <laughs> because of where i grew up and what did your parents do for a living? My father was a nuclear physicist and a research chemist, and he worked for Eastman Kodak. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is uh, parts of the atomic bomb were built in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Uh, the enriched uranium came out of Oak Ridge. My father was one of the people in Oak Ridge enriching uranium. Kodak ran the plant under contract. Uh, my dad worked with uh, Oppenheimer and uh, uh, Einstein directly. And I've got pictures of dad with, with those two people. So when the war was over, he could either go to Rochester, New York, which was Kodak's headquarters, or to their plant in this little backwater town called Kingsport, Tennessee, which Eastman Kodak made all their film there at the time. That's where he went. So that's where I grew up. And, and to, to connect the dots, that's how I got in rock and roll. I fell into love with show business at age five. I'd seen concerts and whatnot. In the 60s, there were no lights. You know, the band came in two station wagons, set up their own junk, had two little tucked and rolled custom PA speakers, set their own stuff up, had one guy that mixed sound and got to check and, and then left. Well, I took the lights out of the high school theater and put them on the handrails around the gym. And this was with the Monkees, the Beach Boys, Parveer and the Raiders, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, which is where I met, first met Roy and Jean Claire from Claire Brothers. Uh, and all these acts in the late 60s, the grassroots, Warren Etner from the grassroots, to this day is one of my dearest friends. Uh, but but So I started taking these lights from the theater down. And, and why did we get these rock shows? Well, in 1968, they built a new high school, and we had a big geodesic dome that had two very unique features, air conditioning, which was unheard of in 1968, and no poles, so no obstructions. 
Knoxville used to get the rock shows, and it's two, it's a, it's a hundred miles away. But their big venue had poles and no air conditioning. So this little backwater town started getting these major rock shows. And here's this kid putting lights on the stage, and they would get a little business card from me that I made in AV class in, in school, you know, with my phone number on it. And, and say they would say, can you come to Chattanooga? Can you come to Lexington? Can you, you know, wh- whatever. And so I started going wider and wider and wider. And as I was doing it, there was a guy in New York doing it. You know, there was people in, in Southern California doing it. But that was the psychedelic era. I remember when you saw the Jefferson Airplane with all the psychedelic stuff and, and the Grateful Dead and all of that. I was emulating those people. I was getting projectors and putting oil and water in slides and doing all this goofy stuff, emulating these people in New York and L.A., and and that was the genesis of it. And and uh, you know, my senior year in high school, we grossed uh, two hundred thousand dollars, which was pretty incredible. Now we spent it all, but then I went came down to UT to get my undergraduate degree, and uh, we did two million dollars out of my dorm room my senior year at high school. And uh, then when I went to law school, uh, one of the acts I had signed was Kenny Rogers, and he was nobody. Well. He, Lucille or the gambler or whatever the hell his first hit was hit and the next thing you know Kenny Rogers biggest artist in the world and I'm in law school and I'm also Kenny Rogers production manager running his show and uh, it just it, it, when I got out of law school my parents thought okay he's going to be a lawyer and I looked at mom and dad and I said I'm with the biggest artist in the world why would I give up this business and it, it wasn't just Kenny I mean we were doing new riders of the purple sage and and Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons and the Grassroots and Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn. I mean, we had all these clients, and and I just kept going. Uh, but but those formative years and that formal education, which I'm a fierce believer in education, again enabled me to do what I've done for the last two and a half years. But that's sort of the the long short version of a new high school and a little redneck town putting me on a trajectory for the rest of my life. Okay, you finished law school. Did you take the bar exam? Never, never intended to. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. 
players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go back. Your father is an academic, essentially. Where do you get your entrepreneurial spirit? Really, two or three things, and I think a lot of people probably have this same story. Uh, do you remember in high school they had uh, accolades, you know, uh, uh, best personality, right. you know, all those things. They were in the yearbook. Uh, we had off the record in, in, in the school newspaper sort of anti-accolades. Uh, in my senior year at high school, I was voted least likely to succeed. <laughs> and, and as stupid as that sounds, that was that was a real motivator. I mean, I'm like... Well, I'll show them. And at the same time, when we wrapped up high school and we're getting ready to go to college, uh, my group of five or six buddies that that were we were all doing this together, high school buddies, they all looked at me. You know, we had ten thousand dollars in the bank and we took it and went to the beach and got a house and drank as much beer as we possibly could. And they said, no, there's no point in carrying on. This will never be anything. (laughs) So. Between my buddies telling me this will never be anything and that newspaper telling me I was the least likely to succeed, I've always been one of those people that, you know, tell me what I can't do and I'll go prove you wrong, even if it's bad for me. <laughs> and and that really drove me. But again, the, the classical education is what prepared me for it, you know, the going to school stuff and, and learning all of that stuff. Okay, why lights as opposed to sound reinforcement or whatever? Simple answer. You never see anybody leave a rock show going, boy, that looked terrible. But half the people that leave a rock show go, that sounded terrible. True story. I mean, to this day, you can't make everybody happy with the audio. Did you ever go to any concert and everybody going out going, no, that was amazing. That sounded really good. Some of them do. Maybe most of them do. But I never heard anybody complain about the lights. So I just figured that's a better path. <laughs> and how did you get the lights out of the theater to install them when you wanted? Well, again, let's go back. This was 1968 in the South. Nothing was locked. Churches didn't lock. Schools didn't lock. Theaters didn't lock. Nothing locked. So by the time I was a senior, on any given weekend, back then rock shows always played in high school gyms. 
uh, and or National Guard armories. They didn't have the, you know, the monolithic basketball arenas yet. So that's where they played. And uh, so the shows were fairly small comparatively, and they always played with the roof lights on. So what I would do uh, would be take all the lights out of the high school. And by the time we were seniors, if we had two or three different gigs going on in a given weekend, we would take the lights from the high school, from both of the junior high schools, and then we'd work our way down to the two movie theaters downtown and take gear from the movie theaters. But, but on Sunday night, we would always have to go back and put all the lights back, and hence the name Bandit. We, we, we were taking the equipment, but we always gave it back. And, and no one knew that. And fast forward to 2008, the city of Kingsport gave me the keys to the city, and it was quite an honor. We had this whole big thing, and I got to speak. And I told this story. And you should have seen these people sitting in the audience, and their jaws dropped because no one knew. You know, We didn't tell them. We just took the lights and put them back. And that was the first time I ever talked about it. And I started that conversation with, I've checked the law, and the statute of limitations has run. <laughs> But that's how it began. And then we came to UT. I pirated equipment from the University of Tennessee Theater because nothing was locked. And then I started buying equipment, and here we are today. Okay, how old were you when you did your first gig? Twelve. And did you consistently do that thereafter? Yep. Ever since ever since that day. Wow. And did you learn about lighting on the fly? Yeah, and you got to remember back then uh, what was lighting. It was a light bulb that had two wires going to it, not three. You know, hot and neutral. There's no ground yet, really. So if the light bulb didn't work, it was one of two things. One of the two wires was broken, or the filament in the light bulb was gone. And and what we started with was the R40 floodlights, like you have in the corner of your house. We had red ones, blue ones, and yellow ones. And, and and we made literally coffee cans like you've heard out of and ran the wires to them. So a, a typical rock show when we started building equipment was extension cords and coffee cans and light bulbs in the coffee cans and or the borrowed lights from the high schools and a whole pile of extension cords. And then we made little wooden boxes that literally had household light switches in it. So all of these cords just plugged into the back of this wooden box and you sat there and flipped the same switches you have on the wall today in your house. And and the way we turned them all on and off at the same time was we had a stick. You had a four-foot stick, and you'd rake it across all the switches, either on or off. So it was really simple. And again, through time, you, you started to begin to learn things about light and texture and color and shape and shade. But none of that existed in 1968, 69, and 70. It was all on and off, on and off. And then we had the overhead projectors with the Pyrex dish with oil and water and red and blue and green food coloring and oddly enough when you stir it with a pencil with your hand your hand and the pencil are not in the focal path and all you get is that psychedelic look and and we were doing all that kind of garbage but you know through time it got more sophisticated and yes through time you began to learn what lighting was all about and how did you uh decide how much to charge in the beginning it was 25 dollars <laughs> And it stayed $25 for a year or two, and then I think it was 50 And, you know, we didn't really get into a real pricing model until probably my senior year of college uh, when I started to figure out we're doing this for fun. We need to do it for money, you know. So about my senior year of college is, is when we began to, to figure out that, okay, there has to be a business plan here that actually makes money. Okay, so you had these friends when did Bandit actually start on the path today? 
Would you say, hey, was that why you were still in school or after school? It, it, it started in 1968. I mean, when I did that first show, I thought, this is the coolest thing in the world. I'm getting to hang out with rock stars and see free shows. And and uh, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, having said that, the reasons were kind of wrong. At first, the reasons were just to see the show and meet the band and meet girls and you know all of those things. And then I realized, yeah, you could actually make money doing this. And say so that that began to shift in college, and, and we had to make the full transition probably my senior year. And that's, that's where I started to apply what I had learned. Herbie Herbert was the manager of Journey, Journey. during yep. their heyday, yep. recently passed. Yep. He famously bought all the equipment and the lights and stage, yep. and he leased it to other people. I've talked to a lot of these major, major acts. I said, why don't you own this stuff? And they say it changes too much. So does anybody own it? What do you mean? Does anybody own their own lights? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Herbie bought it, obviously, first to do Journey. Right. And and uh, so, see, he, he, he owned lights and, and, and stuff, video and whatnot, and he rented it to his band. Uh, he, was, he was the first one that I remember that did it. Uh, uh, there was a company, still is, but it, it's owned by Claire Brothers now, but there was a company in Europe back in the heyday of Pink Floyd called Brit Row or Britannia Row. Well, that was owned by Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd decided, okay, we're going to buy our own stuff and we'll call the company Brit Row based on Britannia Row the street. Uh, at the, about the same time, uh, a company in California you may have heard of, they're still around, Delicate Productions. Delicate was started by Supertramp. When, when they became a big deal, they bought their own PA. So they owned their own stuff. Uh, so there, there, there were several stabs at, at artists doing that. Uh, a few where managers did it. Most of them didn't work out. Uh, and but, but there were stabs that that stabs at doing that. Uh, eventually, the whole nocturne model, which is what Herbie called that organization, uh, ended up uh, dissipating. I guess is the right word. And eventually, the assets were sold off. And uh, but it was a way to do it. And I think it probably worked well for, for Herbie. I don't know who the other partners were. I don't know if he had the band in on it or not, whether any of the band members were in on it. Uh, you've heard of Very Light. The, the, the original Moving Light was right. Very Light. Well, you know, Rusty Bruchet and Jack Maxim were the face of it, but Tony Smith, the manager of Genesis, and indeed the band Genesis were the original financers of it. So Genesis benefited greatly from the world's first moving light. Uh, and eventually that dissipated but but i think they probably did very well that's purely a guess uh, but things like that were not really talked about openly uh i think the world did know that herbie was doing what he was doing because it was herbie wasn't it and he wanted to right. tell you about it right <laughs> but yeah there there have been stabs at that but none really really successful okay so of the business are you worldwide or just in america how does it split you know, we've got offices in in uh, we got offices in Europe and America, and we did have them in Asia, but we've withdrawn from Asia uh, because of everything. We we did that three or four or five years ago when, you know, we had, we had an office in Hong Kong and an office in Taiwan, and then when the, when the Chinese took Hong Kong over, you know, I saw the handwriting on the wall that they weren't going to live up to the twenty five year commitment. And I'm not being political; I'm a business guy. And uh, so we withdrew from from Asia at that point. And I don't think anybody's doing business in Asia anymore that's that's not Chinese 
are, are from that part of the world. Okay. What percentage of the overall market does Bandit have? That's a great question. The industry doesn't report to anyone. No one knows how big this industry is. There's a lot of guesses, and the guesses range from uh, a low of probably $4 billion a year uh, to a high of probably $10 billion a year. I don't know that any of those numbers are correct. I honestly don't know. Uh, and I'm not trying to not answer your question. Uh, just no one really knows uh, how big the industry as a whole is because w- there is no method of reporting. Okay. So an act wants to get lighting for their tour. Let's call it a 25-day tour. What are their options? Who can they go to? Well, there are probably six companies in the United States uh, of any size that that could do what we would all call an A-level tour. And there are probably eight to 12 what you would call mid-level firms. And then, Lord God, there's probably a hundred small firms, but you can't discount the small firms. Uh, There is a company in uh, Omaha, Nebraska called uh, TMS, great company. They do a little act called uh, 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 Dave Matthews. Now they do a few other things, but, but, but the folks that run the company have an old and a strong relationship with Dave Matthews. There's a gentleman down in uh, Alabama that uh, does Brad Paisley does a couple of other things, but he grew up with Brad or something, and he'll always do Brad Paisley. Uh, there's a, co- com- a company in California called Morpheus that, that used to be a major player, not so much anymore, but they've always done Bruce Springsteen, not a bad account to have. So th- there are a lot of companies like that, that that have a major client or two major clients, and and you know the odds of Taking those clients away from those people are pretty slim because in most cases, it's a personal relationship. Just like uh, I, I have a great personal relationship with a little bitty artist called Garth Brooks. And, uh, you know, rumors have always been out there. That, well, Garth owns Bandit. Well, no, he doesn't own Bandit. We're just great friends. I started with Garth when he was in a bar and we like each other. Uh, so... I'm not sure how you would pry Garth Brooks away. I've been with Jimmy Buffett 38 years. Uh, been with you know Brooks and Dunn start to finish, Carrie Underwood start to finish, uh, and, and Alice Cooper 25 years. I mean, you know, so many of these stories shine down the rock bands from the very beginning. Uh, you know, a lot of these for us, we look for long-term relationships as opposed to just bidding on tours. We like to be a part of the family, and that's how this company's built. And how do you convince someone, someone who's in play as opposed to loyal? I mean, I was talking to Garth's manager. He says, Garth is super loyal. Yep. So he's not leaving you unless something serious goes down. But and that comes to you. What happens? You ultimately make a sketch. How is the pitch and how do you differentiate your bandit from competitors? Two ways, two paths. Uh, some artists have their own creative person and or team. And in that case, that creative person and or team comes to us with the blueprints, if you will. They're the architect and we're just the house builder. And they come and they go, here, here it is. Here's what I want. How much is it? Uh, the other model is what you just said. They come to us for what we call a turnkey solution. They go, tell me what I need. You know, give me the blueprint. Give me the plan. Design the house and sell it to me. So, you know, we do both of those. 
and, and, and we like them both. But ultimately, uh, there are a number of bands who just want the absolute cheapest price possible, uh, and, and we'll do, you'll do a tour with them. Then the next year, everything goes out to bed again. I'm not saying that's good or bad. It, it's not where we prefer to go. We want to build a relationship. And, and, and greater than 80% of the people that we work with throughout time, that's what we do. We, we develop career relationships. Now, that's becoming harder, and I think, I think Bob, that you'll know this, because going back to the Rolling Stones and, and the Eagles and, and all of those what we would call super legacy bands, what did they want to, what did the Stones want to do? They wanted to be a rock band forever and ever and ever. You come up to today, these people, a lot of these young artists, that's not their vision. They, they don't want to have a 40-year career like the Stones or the Eagles or Kiss or those. They want to do it for three years, five years, seven years. They want to make a wad of money, and they can now, and then get out and go do something else. Uh, and again, as you know, Bob, because I know you were there, Bands didn't make any money in the 60s and 70s, really into the mid-80s. And, uh, you know, we do Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and any combination thereof. Those guys, they're like me. We all do it for what? The love of the game. And and some of the newer artists don't have that. So today, as we're building relationships, we wonder, will we get three years out of this artist? Will we get five years out of this artist? And sometimes it's not even their fault. As you know, sometimes the artists put out the music, but then but then music moves on, doesn't it? You know, grunge died, didn't it? You could still be great at grunge, but it died. Or the boy bands or the girl bands or, or whatever the, you know, whatever it was. We, we did a band that you've probably never heard of, Westlife. Have you ever heard of Westlife? Of course, English Act. Yeah, world's biggest boy band. Twice right. the business, twice the business of the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC or any boy bands, but Americans have never heard of them because they never cracked America. But we did them start to finish. Now they're back together now, but uh, but they, they never cracked America, and 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 they, and they they literally have done twice the business of any of the other boy bands that all Americans know. So, what percentage of your revenue is concerts? Right now, we do. It depends on the year, but but uh, somewhere between fifty and sixty percent is concerts. It, it depends on the year, and then well, of course, then the rest the rest is integration. Okay, so basically, install permanent installations, correct, into venues, in different and locations, like uh, Fillmore's and House of Blues, and and uh, the World War II Museum down in New Orleans, and and Shop at Home Television Network, and. And, and all kinds of theme parks and rides, and we do cruise ships. You know, we outfit cruise ships, just these extraordinarily boring things that, you know, you, you go tell people, hey, we put the lights in it, and they, they <laughs> but then you go talk about a rock show, and they get excited. I mean, we just did Tom Jones. I mean, <laughs> how cool is that? <laughs> I, did, I did the last four years of the Rat Pack, you know, with the last four Four years, they did two tours across four years before they never did anything again. That was really cool, getting to meet Frank Sinatra and Peter Lawford and Sammy Davis Jr. and, and those people. You know, that was really cool. Uh, but but that's sort of the sexy side of what we do. And, and then there are things that we do that we don't talk about and that we can't talk about. Anything you do for Disney, you sign an NDA and you can't talk about it. Most of the stuff you do for the, any White House, you can't talk about. Uh, I can't tell you that I did... Uh, uh, Obama's 
parties for his children in the White House. I can't tell you that. Maybe I did do it, but I can't tell you that. (laughs) Okay. So you're in lighting. Did you ever think of broadening to something else, production, staging? No, I'm one of those guys that believes, you know, do what you're good at. I'm not saying the other people are wrong, but uh, most of the people that I know that start out in one discipline are really good at it and really average at the other things they sneak into. Uh, and I'm not really aware of anybody that, that uh, I think you dilute your core business. And, and that's just a thought process. I mean, right now, there are a lot of artists that want a turnkey solution. They want a one-stop shop. And you know, my point of view is, okay, you're going to get average sound, average lighting, average video, or you can go up to a really good lighting company and a really good sound company and a really good video company. But, you know, that's just two different modes of doing business, and I respect the other methods. Okay, how hands-on are you? Well, it's 10 o'clock at night, and I'm sitting in my office. <laughs> well, I mean, you talk about flying all over the country and your million-member uh, yeah. mailing lists. Uh, how much are you working on Bandit? Oh, uh, I work 14 to 18 hours a day. Uh, again, that balance shifts. It's, some days it's 50-50, some days it's 60-40 one way and or the other. But no, I'm extraordinarily hands-on. And, and all of my peers are retired. All of them are dead. Uh, in, fact, in, fact, in fact, we had an original Bandit pass away yesterday. And, uh, but, but I'm one of those guys, A, I'm a workaholic. And B, I really enjoy what I do. I really enjoy it. I, I didn't just do it for money. I did it for the love of the game. I'm also big into football and college football. And I know a lot of football players, and I played football. And and it, it, the emotion's the same. You do it for the love of the game. The difference between me and Peyton Manning, who's a friend of mine, Peyton can't play football anymore. Right. He's too old. I can still do rock and roll. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up as well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James! And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? 
Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, if you go on your LinkedIn page, you have like a million companies. What are all those companies? <laughs> Through time. Um the the in America up until 1981 everybody made their own everything in the world of lighting made your own lights you made your own truss you made your own cable and there was no continuity to it in England and Europe because of legislation over there it was illegal to make your own truss it was illegal to make your own lights you had to buy them from a certified manufacturer that met certain standards so uh, th- there were standards that existed over there, and there were companies. There was a guy named Eric Pierce, owned a company called Show Group Production Services. Eric sadly passed away last fall. Uh, Eric actually invented a number of the devices that to this day are used as the standardization began to happen. So in Europe, everything was standardized. Well, I went over to Europe in 1980 and met uh, Graham Thomas and John Walters, who made all the aluminum truss structure, a company called Thomas Engineering. And I said, I'm going to buy the American rights and set that up. And I did. So I bought the American rights and set up Thomas Engineering. Within three years, everybody in America quit making their own trust and started buying from, from Thomas. They didn't know that I owned it. I kept my ownership secret. Uh, later on, there was an, I helped set up another company called Tomcat, which was a, another trusting company. So I, I had the two largest trusting companies in America. Then there was a control company that made the light boards in England called Avalites. Well, I bought the American rights to that. So now I own the two largest trussing manufacturers as well as the console company. And uh, so all of my competitors used stuff that I sold. Now, again, I kept my ownership secret. That's three of the companies that were on there. Uh, Some of the other ones that are on there, Lord God, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I own a company called BPH, which is a, a property holding company. Uh, I own a company called Fall Air. I own some airplanes, and, and the airplanes are in that. Uh, what else do I own? Uh, oh, Lord God, I'd have to look at the website. I've got several other entities of that nature, but but a lot of them are tied to that. I, I, I was For five years, I was part owner of Skycam. I know you know what Skycam is, the flying camera. Uh, I was part owner of that for a number of years. Uh, I'm sure I'm leaving some stuff off. <laughs> okay, so do you do you still own the board making and the uh, trust? No, making? no, no. I've sold all that. I've sold all that. Oh, and I had a company for ten or twelve years called uh, 
Authentic Stars. And what we did at Authentic Stars was we sold rock and roll merchandise uh, into ma- into mass mar- merchandising. We started with Walmart. So when you'd go in Walmart and see a big rack full of Kiss T-shirts and Alice Cooper T-shirts and you know what whatever and merchandise and all that, that was me, me and and, and a guy named Charlie Anderson who put all the records and all the tapes and all the books and all the WalMarts and then all the Best Buys. So I just coattailed with with Charlie and it was it was myself, Charlie Anderson and Bill Battle. Bill Battle was once the football coach at UT and and eventually the athletic director at Alabama. Well, we had this company together where we put all this show business merchandise into the music sections at all the WalMarts and then all of the uh, Best Buys, which had everything to do with rock and roll and nothing to do with bandit lights you know what i mean i just i just knew the right people and so for years and years and years we put merchandise across all those stores and then we eventually sold that company that's one of them that's owned there Um, okay how often are equipment failures and uh crew injuries i mean you don't hear about them all the time but you hear about a truss falling or a light falling what's going on in that world in the last 20 years not so much I mean, it's it's very rare because of the safety. Again, the standardization of all of this stuff came into play years ago, and it is really safe. And the people are getting trained better. And and uh, and and the, the funny story in 1992 or three, REM was going out on a tour, and they hired a new production manager, a gentleman named Mikey Weiss, who also did uh, Neil Diamond for years and years. Mikey's a great guy. Find myself on the phone before the tour goes out. <clears throat> this is when REM's just as big as as big as they can be. And Mikey's telling me, and you're going to put fall protection on all of your lighting trusses so no one falls. For 20 minutes, I'm arguing with the guy because I'm going to have to spend ten thousand dollars to buy that. And I'm going, if I have to, you know, I've got 30 tours out times ten thousand dollars. That's three hundred thousand dollars. I'm not doing this. And about 10 minutes in, it hit me. What are you doing? One fall will cost you way more than three. So I thanked Mikey. We bought the equipment. We put it out. And from that day forward, Bandit Lights wouldn't let anybody go up on the truss without fall protection. And for five years, we lost market share because everyone hated it. The unions hated it. Oh, boy, you get to New York to Local One and try to tell a Local One stagehand that they've got to put on fall protection to go up there. And all you get is, I'm not putting that shit on. I've been doing this my whole life. Who the hell do you think? You know, And and I would get phone calls. And, and we lost business because tours said, yeah, don't use Bandit. They insist on fall protection. Well, fast forward five, six years, the whole industry did it. And, of course, now everybody does it. Now no one goes up. But we were the industry leader in that. And, again, it was all because of Mikey Weiss. Uh, he's the one for those, that, for those unaware, what exactly is fall protection? You know, that wearing a harness and being attached to a rope so that, you know, when you're up in the air, 30, 40, 50, 60 feet, if you do fall, you, you fall four or five feet and then you just dangle and, you know, you don't fall to your death. And, and really we, you know, I, I'm aware of, you know, two or three deaths a year globally, but they're never really from people falling. It's, it's from when a, a structure collapses, a, a stage roof falls, or, or tragically the uh, the Sugarland thing where the top blew over. Uh, I actually designed the thing that blew over was a Thomas top, and I was one of four designers of it. Now by then I had sold the company, but I was called as an expert witness because I had to go sit and testify as to why it failed, and, and it failed because the people that owned it 
didn't follow the instructions. The instructions are very specific that when you put the top up, you've got to have a certain amount of weight on the bottom and, 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 and you, you know, you got to do A, B, C, and D, and they didn't. And it blew over. So I remember the Stones went on tour in 72, and they said, we have to have the Super Trooper lights. I remember seeing, yes, early 80s, uh, when uh, 90215 or whatever it was, and they had the lighting uh, trusses that went down and up. Supposedly, Genesis did that first. What What are the things on the cutting edge in lighting right now? Uh, everything you just mentioned, uh, all of the moving trusses, I mean, there's not a lot right now that hasn't been done because we're so technologically advanced. Right now, we're sort of in year five of of uh, variations on a theme. Uh, you know, th- th- think about smartphones. You know, you've got iPhones and this phone and that phone and the Google phone, they're all kind of the same, but by degrees, they're a little bit different. You know, the, I think it's the Google phone that will take any picture and smooth it out and make you look better. Uh, that's their unique thing. There are by degrees things of that nature, but for the most part, lights just move and wiggle and change colors and make patterns. And, and you know, there, there was a race to make them smaller and lighter and, and faster. And, you know, that continues to go on. But again, think iPhone. Uh, has there been a quantum shift in iPhones? Not really. It's by degrees from phone to phone. And that's really where entertainment lighting is. Right now, people are dabbling with lasers as a light source. And there is a small handful of, of lights that are lasers. We own several hundred of them. We've got a bunch of them on the new Carrie Underwood tour. But in America, anything that's called a laser falls under the control of the FDA, and you have to get, just like pyro, you have to get a permit in every city, and you have to have a laser guy come over, and they can't shine on the crowd, and so on and so forth. So uh, will laser lights ever become mainstream in America? Not until the legislation changes. Uh, Well, how, how dangerous are these laser lights? If you ask the FDA, they're extraordinarily dangerous. If you ask the people that make them, not at all. I mean... You know, what? what's the real answer? Who knows? Okay, you grew up when the South was still considered redneck. Correct. And I've certainly been to Nashville, which is pretty cosmopolitan, has some country element. Memphis, which is really more Mississippi than Nashville. Yep. What's Knoxville like? Knoxville uh, is... You've got the Delta down in Mississippi and all of those sort of Delta influences and, 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 and jazz and blues and soul and all of that stuff. And it's always been there, uh, you know, but because of, of the, the cotton trade and, and all that went with that for generations. Uh, Nashville uh, and Knoxville were both port towns because of a river. And if you go back 150 years, and again, because of my role here running the Chamber of Commerce and being involved in all of that, if you go back 150 years, Knoxville and Nashville were just alike with one difference. Nashville had uh, Norfolk and Southern Railroad and L&N Railroad. So it grew faster and it became bigger uh, because it had both rail and water. Knoxville only had uh, uh, water. Uh, Knoxville got a little bit of rail. Uh, So Knoxville remained much more rural much longer. And even today, Knoxville is more agrarian. It's more of an agricultural society. Uh, and there is no agrarian component to Nashville. There isn't. I mean, it's you've been there recently, probably. 
Uh, so we're still very agrarian and, and, you know, very agriculturally oriented and, and very uh, uh, slow. And uh, quality of life's higher, cost of living's lower. Uh, great place to live. I live on the lake. I can see the mountains. Uh, most people that come here uh, to work with Bandit that live somewhere else move here for all the reasons that I said. People are nice. Cost of living's low. Quality of life is high. Air's clean, uh, and you don't have the uh, you don't have the traffic and all the issues that you do in a Nashville or a Memphis, which both of those are approaching a Los Angeles type situation. So, what do coastal people or northern people not understand about the South? I think they understand the South much better now because, again, you you brought up something that you may have read, <clears throat> sixty eight through ninety three. My competitors were all in New York, Los Angeles, and London. And the first thing they would say to potential clients was, you can't use bandit lights because it's a bunch of rednecks. They don't wear shoes. They don't have teeth. They don't know what they're doing. And and that sold. I mean, that, that did sell. Um, but in 93, they turned around and looked, and, and bandit lights was doing Queen and Aerosmith and Van Halen and R.E.M. and Faith No More and Rage Against the Machine and 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 Garth Brooks and so on and so on and all of a sudden and and we in the hairband days we were doing Quiet Riot and Crocus and Twisted Sister and Rat and all of those bands and all of a sudden we went, holy cow these rednecks are bigger than we are <laughs> and they got more lights and they're doing more stuff and and they started taking us seriously and uh, I don't know if you remember years ago, there was a magazine uh, called Performance. Do you remember Performance? Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, Performance in 93 did a bunch of accolades. And uh, I forget exactly what the words were. I think it was Bill Littleton that wrote it, said uh, uh, the, the company this year with the the biggest bump and biggest bump or whatever. And it was Bandit out of all the companies, not just lighting, but everything and, and did a whole article on us. And uh, so anyway, fast forward to 2023, every major production company in America has an office in Nashville, Tennessee. You know, the, the, the rednecks, you know, they've all come to the rednecks. And for the most part, uh, production companies have deserted New York and L.A. for a number of reasons. First and foremost, the cost. Uh, secondly, they finally figured out that with my lights sitting in Nashville, I could be to two thirds of the venues in 24 hours. When your when your lights are sitting in L.A., you can be to 10 percent of the venues in 24 hours. It's why FedEx is in Memphis. It's centrally located. Put a pin in the map everywhere there's a venue, and you got this tremendous cluster east of the Mississippi, a small handful across the desert, and then a bunch up and down the West Coast. And that's what I did at an early age. I put pins in maps, and so today everybody has an office in Nashville. Think of how many pop stars actually live in Nashville. It's, it, it, it's countless. Cost of living's lower. Quality of life's higher. Uh, I've got a lot of friends that have sold their house in L.A. Uh, you know, and gotten uh, you know one point five million dollars for their house. This is pre-COVID, and, and then moved to Nashville and bought a house twice that size for seven hundred thousand, and and got acreage with it and put the rest of the money in the bank. So. You know, the, the rest of the world kind of discovered what we always knew about cost of living and how friendly the people were and, and how centrally located it is. 
and, and of course, everything's cheaper. The warehouses are cheaper. The labor's cheaper. Uh, and, and the rest of the world has finally caught on to that. Okay. Leaving aside bandit lights in the entertainment business, to what degree, I'm just using, you know, the pejorative descriptions, don't shoot the messenger, is the South still racist, redneck, dip behind, or is that passe? To me, it's passe. Of course, I would say that I live here. But let me let me tell you how I grew up. Uh, in the in the late 50s, early 60s, at Woolworths and McCrory's and Cress's, which were the big department stores, we had men's and women's restrooms. We also had white and colored restrooms. We had uh, white and colored water fountains. We had white and colored lunch counters. As a kid, I, I didn't see that distinction as anything other than men and women. In other words, I didn't look at men and women's restrooms and think that women were less than men. You follow me? Of course. And, and, and the same thing between black and white. That, to me, it was different. That was all. And and I, 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 I and most people I knew never had what, what you would call a, a racist point of view. Did those people exist? Absolutely. You know, did they use the inappropriate language? Sure, they did. Uh, but, but I didn't grow up in that. You know, I, I grew up around it. But but I never saw it and was never aware of it, really, until, uh, geez, after college, probably, because it was just how it was. Now, by the time by the time I was a senior in high school, the, the, the segregation was over, the, the black and white water fountains and all of that stuff. But, but I never experienced people mistreating one another, never, ever experienced it. And, uh, you know, no, I don't think it exists. Now, I have a really unique view about uh, equality. And, and racism and all of those things. And I'm not saying I'm right, but my opinion is just really simple. The best way to treat everybody fairly is just to quit talking about differences. You know, that just, we're all human beings. You know, we're, we're all one. And, and that's, that's how I feel. I don't look at someone as black or white or male or female or transgender or gay. or I, I, They're just people. You know, they're just people. And, and I think the sooner we stop pointing out distinctions, uh, the quicker we'll get to a better place. Now, having said that, I understand the argument against it, that if, if we're not proactive, it will never end. And, and I do think most of the preconceived notion about racism and, and rednecks and all of that in the South, most of that is is not true. Having said that, my son played football all through high school, and on any given Friday and Saturday night, my house would have eight or ten guys there after the game, and they'd spend the weekend, and there'd be three white kids and seven black kids, and, and nobody saw color. Nobody saw color. And and, and the parents would come over, and, and you know, we, we were friends. And But there was this one kid, and he was that kid that, that gives us all the, the black eye. You know, his dad was a hardcore racist. And then whenever this kid was uh, – was not around any of the black kids. He would he would go there. You know, he would use all the inappropriate behavior, and and I'd look at him and go, you know, you know, Bob, stop it. You know, but that's just how he was wired. You know, is it, are they out there? Sure, they are. You know, there's anti-Semites that don't like Jewish. You know, I mean, there's there's people everywhere that that you know that don't like somebody, uh, and, and I'm not sure how you overcome that. But but no, by and large, I don't think the South is any more or less uh, backwards 
than anywhere else at this point. Okay, of the 300 people uh, who work at Bandit, how many are women or people of color? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, 30% of the people at Bandit are female, and that includes road staff. Uh, we've probably got more uh, female road staff than anybody else. Uh, and uh, 19% of the people at Bandit are, are people of color. Uh, and we don't hire people based on anything other than ability. And a funny story, we've got 18 people now in accounting. They're all women. And it's not by design. It's not. You know, We interview each time we make a hire. Guess what? It, it's usually females. We've had males in accounting, but right now they're all females because the most qualified person through that door was a woman. So we hired her. Okay. So you say you work 16, 18 hours a day and you're flying all over the country. How do you maintain a relationship? I'm single. (laughs) How many times have you been married? I've had five very serious failed relationships, two of which were marriages. And, and and after the fifth one, I figured out it was me. <laughs> and is that because you're so dedicated to the yeah. work? Yeah. I mean, each, you know, people would say, you're married to bandit lights. No, I'm not. You know, and, and then finally, after this last one, which which ended right right as COVID hit, I realized it is me and they are right. And, and, and my story now, which I believe, had I had a girlfriend when COVID started, I wouldn't have one now because I was in D.C. in L.A. in New York. You know, I was doing what I'm doing, and and, and you know, I've got a meeting tomorrow morning at six thirty that'll probably run two hours to to do with all of this. And uh, who would put up with that? I wouldn't. <laughs> but it's okay. I love it. Okay, Michael, this has been very edifying. I want to thank you for taking the time to speak to my audience. Bob, thank you very much. And again, please let me wrap up by urging anyone that hears this. Uh, we've got to get this entertainment association going. And once we get it going and living and breathing and in the shape of fashion in a format that everyone's comfortable with, we will have a defense mechanism against a future shutdown. And if someone wants more information or wants to make contact with you or be active, how might they do that? (laughs) Since 1.3 million people have all of my personal information, I have no problem in sharing it. It's first initial, last name, M. Strickland, S-T-R-I-C-K-L-A-N-D, at Bandit, B-A-N-D-I-T, Lights, L-I-T-E-S, dot com. Shoot me an email, and you can talk to anybody that's in my circle. I answer them all. And, buddy, back in the middle of COVID, that was quite a task. It's not as daunting as now, but I answer everyone. There's no cookie-cutter thing. It's it's an answer. But I find I get I get more traction that way. Well, you're doing yeoman's work. It's really admirable. Hopefully, it'll all come to fruition. Thanks again for doing this. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Have a great evening. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart. 
in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-course, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 